On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are bringing back an old friend, no, I mean not old, a long-standing friend to join us long before she got into politics. She was here on Fridays and we've brought her back. Sandy Shaw, an NDP MPP for Hamilton, Hamilton West Ancaster Dundas, which, man, it's a bad acronym. We'll talk about that. Anyway, we got tons of stuff to get to from the serious at Queen's Park to the, well, to the less serious. Specifically, what exactly constitutes an emotional support animal? Is there a limit? Could I bring a blue whale onto a plane as an emotional support animal? We'll talk about all that. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show. We got to have that music to start every show. That is, that is substantial. That, that makes you feel like you're about to watch a show. Maybe involving violence and nudity. I don't know. Not today. Not today. Just to clarify. But that, that, that is a, that fanfare makes you feel like you're about to be entertained. And today you will be entertained, informed, educated, infotained. I'm not really sure what the word is going to be, but got someone in studio with me as we do Fridays when we're here and we haven't had her in a while because, well, because she's busy, but we love having her and we had her, we, she was a regular on this show well before she launched into the world of high full contact politics, but Sandy Shaw, the NDP MPP from Hamilton West. Ancaster Dundas. Thank you. After we've just had the federal election and I had the Hamilton. Okay, wait, it's the same thing. It's the same. Same thing, but I, you know what? I was th- I was sure I was just going to get it all screwed up. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. A little little pressure with the intro. Well, you know, now you're a big deal. I mean, you were <laughs> always a big deal, but now you're a really big deal. I really do believe that I had the Scott Radley show to thank really? for this. Really? That's yeah. what you're crediting it with? Why not? We've had other politicians, aspiring politicians on who did not get elected. So I don't really think that's going <laughs> to, I don't think you I'm can. I'm sticking to that theory. Hey, uh, during the federal election, I want to get, we got a whole bunch of things to get into, but I, I did want to ask you that we just did go through the federal election. Having been through the provincial election and you running, when you watch an election going on now, having been down that road, do you look and go, man, I wish I was out there knocking on doors and walking and doing that stuff. Or are you going, man, thank goodness I don't have to do that this time? Bit of both. How's that? I, I have to say that in elections, the thing that I love the most is knocking on doors because you meet, it's Hamilton, right? So standing on the doorsteps of people in Hamilton, you meet the most interesting people. A little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. Hamiltonians uh, don't hold back when they want to tell you what's what. They give you the straight goods. That's why I love Hamilton. But, you know, you need to hear that as a politician or an aspiring politician. And I do love knocking on doors. Uh, some of the other parts of politics, as you said, it's it really is a blood sport. Did you ever get chewed out when you were at a door? Oh, yeah. Really? Who wouldn't be Hamilton if I didn't get chewed out? What but I that? also get chewed out for things that aren't my fault, but I, I can take my lumps. Okay, so it, it's no fun. Obviously, you had many people you got you won, so you had many people who supported you and liked what you did. Right. But that's not fun to hear about. What what's the What was the worst? You don't have to tell us where the person, but what was the worst you got? Do you remember when you were out there knocking on doors? Well... 
it had to do with cats. <laughs> cats? <laughs> yes, which I love cats. I have cats are the most curious, interesting creatures you're ever going to meet. So how did this become but a problem? apparently they need to have, we have dog parks. Oh, okay. We, we need to have cat parks in Hamilton. We do have cat parks. Well, apparently. The entire outdoors. <laughs> there is that. There is that. And that's what cats think. Do, they, don't they, fence me in. They just go everywhere. <laughs> we don't need a cat park. I See, I thought you were going to go cat licenses. No, just just the cats, you know, need to have a place that they can socialize. And, you know. Uh, How would we, even if you built a cat park, not that you're, this is not your political platform, by the way, just in case anyone's confused. <laughs> yes. But, how would we even keep cats don't stay in one area you'd have to have a wall that was 12 feet high with sheer steel coated in vaseline to keep yeah. them from climbing out cats we do not even come close to to the the, the brilliance that cats are and my favorite is you cannot get the dirtiest looks you're ever going to get in your life are from cats <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, okay, so cats was a problem. Do you remember anything else that, no. that was a problem? <laughs> that was <laughs> just the one that cats, stood out. But, you know, people have a lot of concerns, and it doesn't matter to me. When I'm on someone's doorstep, and I mean this genuinely, I'm basically in their space. So I've taken the time to knock on their door. They didn't ask me to come knock on the door. So when I'm on their doorstep, I'm here. I will listen to whatever it is that is on their mind. You know, whether it's a provincial issue or not, whether it's something that is really a municipal issue, if they have a concern about, you know, honestly, garbage collection or potholes, or if it's a federal issue related, you know, to national defense or, you know, or, you know, uh, other things that are at the federal level. I'm happy to hear what people have to say. But when it comes right down to it, it doesn't matter what provincial, federal, municipal level it is, people really want the same kind of thing. You know, they want to be treated fairly. Uh, with respect, they want to be told, you know, the, the straight goods, and they also just want to improve the lives for their families and also for their community. And it's really is, um, it's really great to get out there and hear what Hamiltonians have to say, whether you want to hear it or not. Well, I'm I'm amazed because we had Pete Dyakowski. He was on on Tuesday, who ran in the last yes. federal election, was here for the Novemberger sampling event on Tuesday evening. If you missed that, go to the podcast. You can hear it. You can hear Pete chomping on hamburgers and talking, and always entertaining. Mm. And afterwards, he said to me that he had a bunch of, not a lot, but he had a few doors slammed in his face. And I'm always amazed, not that people have different political views than candidates who come by, but that people would just genuinely be rude. If you're running and you're not even part of the party, you haven't been governing, it's not, I just don't understand how the, that maybe it's just me, maybe it's my personality. I'm not going to slam a door in someone's face or scream at them or mm-hmm. you can have a conversation. You may disagree. You may tell them, no, I don't want your sign. I'm not voting for you. But I don't get the just the, 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 the anger response. Yeah. You know, I don't either. I, I, I'm just going to indulge myself and tell this one story. That, Please. That it, it's uh, knocked on a door. And, you know, I said, hi, I'm Sandy. I'm running to be, you know, your new MPP. And they were really rude about it and said, you're not going to be my MPP. And I said, well, I might. <laughs> You know, and so it's crossed my mind I might go back and you knock on the back door and, and go, say, "Hey, I am." Like, yeah, exactly. And so that was the only that was the hardest one, and that involved a uh, door slam as well. Just but, keep your fingers out. Of the way. Exactly. But the other thing about that is very difficult because it's hard to know. Uh, you know, is someone knocking on? You're you're in people's space, right? So I'm mindful that I'm I'm knocking on the door, whether I was invited or not. Two things can happen though. One, someone can be upset that you come knock on their door. 
and you have to take your lumps for that. The other thing that can happen is people will say, well, she never came to my door. I never heard from her. So it's hard to know what's best to do. So Damn if you do, damn if it, you don't. Exactly. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. In studio with Sandy Shaw. Glad to have Sandy back. It's been a while. NDP MPP for Hamilton West, Ancaster, Dundas. Uh, just before we get into the serious stuff, I do think one of your things you should bring forward in the legislature is to change the name from H-Wad, which it's, always has sort of a, a frklumped sound know, to it, H-Wad. I know. I, I actually promised that that would be one of my first uh, <laughs> you know, things that... You uh, can spin it around, the letters. I mean, we, but, I, I didn't do it. We could probably rearrange the letters and come up with something that sounds nicer. I agree, but apparently I don't have the authority to do that, which is a big disappointment. Somebody must. Somebody must. Somebody find must. that person. Find that person <laughs> and let's move a motion that yeah. would change it from HWAD because in both provincial and federal, it really is the most unappealing sounding It does. Name. It sounds, yeah, I, I couldn't agree, disagree, no. uh, <laughs> agree more that it's HWAD. But you know what? It's, you don't forget it. No, you do not forget <laughs> it. And, <clears throat> excuse me. You do not forget it. All right, let's dive right into this because this has been a really interesting week and I can't uh, have you here without asking about this down at the legislature. And we know that uh, what happened earlier in the week, Doug Ford talked about Hamilton being destroyed by the socialists. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm assuming you know that that was you that he was talking Apparently, about. yes. Uh, well, there's no other socialists, I don't think, that are in office or running. So um, uh, let's start with this. I, before we get into the dive deep into it, um, you took it personally, I understand. I took it personally as a Hamiltonian. You know, not nothing, no partisan... You know, uh, we're from Hamilton. So you know what? The one thing that unites us is don't mess with the hammer. And so Doug Ford got up in his hind legs in the legislature to disparage. You know, he started with disparaging us as MPPs. But what he really did was insult every single person in the city of Hamilton. And so, you know, I put I, 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 I put my MPP hat aside and just responded like a Hamiltonian, like, just don't do that. Why is it, and th- this is absolutely true, and it's not about partisan in any way, why is it that it's okay for people in Hamilton to insult ourselves and other people from Hamilton, but you better not do it if you're from outside the city? Well, exactly. Well, because it's like, don't you know, I can talk about my brother, or I can say anything I want about my sister, but don't you dare talk about my family. And so the idea is that when, as Hamiltonians, we, you know, we kind of you know, make fun about our Hamiltonian kind of traits. You know, there's a hashtag, it's a Hamilton thing. We know those Hamilton things, like, like you know, Roma Pizza, there's a Hamilton thing. You know, there's many things that we just know. If you're from Hamilton, you know that. But we do it with love and with an understanding that Sometimes. we're from Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, but we, with an understanding we're from Hamilton. We work hard in Hamilton. We will always be from Hamilton. And so when we do it, we know it's almost like family. It's not like an outsider that doesn't understand Hamilton at all. Do we have too thin a skin? No. We do not have too thin a skin. This is, Doug Ford is the premier of Ontario. I mean, he represents all of Ontario. And for him to get up in the legislature and insult a city of 500,000 people, 500,000 hardworking people in the province that he is the premier of, whether the people of Ontario, or people, pardon me, of Hamilton thought that they should vote for him to be the premier or not, he is the premier. He's elected to represent us. And it is completely, completely insulting for him to stand up there and talk about us 
in the most uninformed and insulting manner possible. I know that you responded. Um, I know that uh, um, there are other members from this area. What was the response? They're, they're not just NDP members from this no. area. There's Donna, who's Donna Skelly, who's going to, uh, I, you know, I'm assuming stand behind Doug Ford. That's her party. But what about the others? Did you, were There are those from the Liberal Party. Did you hear from them? Well, we, uh, you know, not in the House, but we did hear from other uh, members of the legislature where it's so obvious, painfully obvious, like Doug Ford is not there's nothing finesse about that guy, right? And so it's so painfully obvious that he's prepared to throw a whole city under the bus for some, you know, idea that he thinks that he's going to hurt us in, in the in in uh, the city of Hamilton. And other members of the legislature, they know that this is classless, and they know that it's not it's beneath the role of the premier of Ontario. And so we did hear that not so much in the legislature, but you know, in the halls of Queens Park. But but uh, Monique Taylor, who's the MPP for for Hamilton Mountain. I got up in the house and and asked the next day to the premier, would you like to say something nice about the city of Hamilton? And not only did he refuse really to offer some, not even necessarily an apology, but some kinder words about the city of Hamilton, he doubled down because that's not a guy, Doug Ford's not a guy that will ever admit that he's uh, made a mistake. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. In studio with Sandy Shaw, MPP for... HWAD, the soon-to-be-changed name, <laughs> yeah. if anyone gets their way. Call in with suggestions. We Last segment, we were talking about the comments by Doug Ford about Hamilton being destroyed by socialists. Now, I think that uh, most people who live in Hamilton would say, okay, the city's not been destroyed. There are parts that could see improvements still. There are parts that are improving. But I wanted to ask you this, Sandy, because within this which I would agree, I think your word of saying there was a lack of finesse, I think that's a perfect description for it. There are some things that some people are going to point to and say, okay, lost in that bluster are maybe some truisms. And one of them, and this came up in the federal election because the ridings are the same ridings federally and provincially, is that Hamilton Center, which has been held by the NDP provincially and federally for almost forever, for as long as the riding has existed, is now out of 338 ridings in Ontario, in Canada, is the 336th ter- in terms of median household income, average household income. And people look at this and say, this is a riding that has been left behind. This is a riding that's not doing well. This is a riding that's got poverty, that's not seeing a lot of answers. And this is a riding that has been led by someone, Andrea Horvath is the, your leaders from there, and Matt Green f- following David Christofferson. Is there no criticism then to be had to say, you know, when he says socialist, he means NDP, they've failed in this writing. Is that is that not a fair comment, even if he said it in a different way? Well, no, it's not a fair comment at all. And in fact, you know, Doug, Doug Ford is the premier. And if he was really concerned about uh, vulnerable people in the province of Ontario and some of the vulnerable people that live in Hamilton, uh, he would have st- stopped. He wouldn't have cut the basic income pilot. Now, there's a perfect example of something that we were doing in the city of Hamilton to address some of that poverty, the poverty issues that we have in the city of Hamilton. It was a pilot. It was showing promise uh, to find out if there are other ways to address the kinds of deep poverty that we have in Hamilton, but also in other areas of of the province. It was also going on in Lindsay and Peterborough, I believe, and um, I think Thunder Bay. Uh, despite his promise not to cut the basic income pilot, 
ballot during the campaign that was cut with no real warning to the people that were on this uh, with had been promised four years of, of this kind of income to, to try and uh, improve their lives. I mean, if if he's the premier, it's not up to individual MPPs to fix the, the problem of the province. That's the premier. And he's done nothing to address that. But uh, harm people. I mean, he cut the minimum wage by, you know, the promised minimum wage by a dollar. He cut the social assistance rates I- in half, uh, the promised increase in half. So is it the responsibility of in- individual MPPs or is it the responsibility of the people in power? And my guess is the people of Hamilton support the New Democrats because they always speak for and stand up for these for working class people and low income people, and you know what? When uh, liberals get elected, we had 15 years of liberal rule in in the province of Ontario. Things didn't get better for working class. No, and, people. and I was going to say this: like it, as much as right now, it's it's fun to dump on Doug Ford. This is not just a Doug Ford thing. Right. This has been liberals before then right. who were governing. But wouldn't it? Would there? Is it not a fair question to say? I mean, every backbench MPP doesn't have great power to change something in their riding or in their area. But this is your leader's riding. Surely Andrea Horvath has more power to make something happen than the average MPP. And this and, and the riding is still yeah. struggling. And, you know, and the riding is still is the, the I think that what we need to know is that Andrea Horvath stands up every single day in the House in her uh, daily life to, to support and advocate for working class people in in this in her riding. You know, and I mean, I guess what uh, what Doug Ford was trying to say in the House when he said that, you know, that that sit, the city of Hamilton has been destroyed. And thank goodness for MPP Don, Donna Skelly, because she's going to fly in, you know, with a cape and save uh, save the city of Hamilton. Number one, let's see that happen. That would be very nice. And the second part of all this, the underlying uh, premise, the thing that Doug Ford is hinting at is really pork, bar- pork barrel politics. So elect us and guess what some money will flow into your riding and you know that's you know we hear people that are so cynical about politics and this is the kind of thing that makes people cynical about politics well Scott Duvall in the, uh, the in the debate that I moderated and again sorry if regular listeners you've heard this before we talked about this we talked about it with Scott Duvall he said that on the debate on cable mm-hmm. 14 when someone said why have you not done more for your riding he goes it doesn't work that way you don't get money unless you're in power Sandy, the, the, the tricky part about that answer, while it was wonderfully honest and, and true, is that it leads to the next question of, well, then why should someone vote for a party that doesn't look like it's about to yeah. make a government? And so had we had a PC, a conservative MPP in Hamilton, what would we have seen? We've already seen what this conservative government does. They cut the minimum wage. They cut the basic income pilot. They cut social assistance in half. They've done nothing to address housing crisis in Hamilton. They've just this week, Thursday, passed a bill, Bill 124, that caps the wages of public sector workers in Ontario, all across Ontario, not just this Hamilton. And when I say public sector workers, I'm talking about school bus drivers. Their wages are going to be capped at 1%. I'm talking about early childhood education workers who make on average $35,000 a year, primarily women, talking about per, uh, we're talking about personal support workers that work in like day in, day out, trying to keep a system afloat. You know, if you're a personal support worker in the province of Ontario and you work full-time, 
full year at minimum wage, you might earn like $28,000 a year. And this is who Doug Ford decided that their wages need to be capped. Doug Ford is basically saying, not just to the people of Hamilton, but the people all across Ontario, whether you voted for him or not, that, that working people, frontline people, they're responsible for the debt and the deficit of the province of Ontario. At the same time where this government self-dealed themselves, promotions and huge raises, but, you know, it's, it's like, really, it's austerity for all of us and, you know, fun times for Doug Ford government. So here's an instance where I don't believe wh- whether we had, you know, a PC government or a PC MPP, conservative MPP, liberal MPP, they've shown themselves to not really stand up and support working class people. We say it all the time, liberal Tory, same old story. And at least with the New Democrats, you know what you get. You know that every single time we get anywhere, we're going to defend, you know, average Ontarians. We're not in it for anybody but the working, working people of the province of Ontario. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Sandy, I was going to move on, but you raised something, and I, I, I want to spend a few more minutes on this because I, I think it's a, an interesting you raised, and that is about the, um, what is it, Bill 129? 124. 124, yeah. about putting a cap on public mm-hmm. sector raises. I'm assuming, I'm guessing that anybody who works in the public sector is not happy with this. But I bet you there's an awful lot of people who work in the private sector who are saying about time where this the the public sector workers have been getting a sweet deal compared to private employees for a long time. Well, I think what you what everyone needs to understand is when you hear public sector workers, you think they're talking about high paid civil servants. I think you're talking about that people think that what you mean by that is people that are on the sunshine list earning two hundred thousand a year plus plus. But this is the broader public service. And let's be completely and perfectly clear. We are talking, this bill will impact about a million workers in the province of Ontario. That's a million workers and their families. Let's keep that in mind. And, uh, you know, as I said earlier, this bill doesn't discriminate between people that are making 100, 150 plus and up, up, up. It impacts everyone. So, you know, we hear all the time about our, our long-term care homes and home care and personal support workers who are run off their feet. They're primarily women. Uh, you know, they work these incredibly long hours trying to keep a system together that's been underfunded by the liberals and now has seen significant cuts under the Doug Ford's conservatives. You know, they these are the people that, you know, work with, live, live and work with our you know, our seniors, our loved ones. And, you know, I've met with many of them. And, and so before, I, and this is a bill that impacts their wages. And so I've met with many of these uh, of these workers, uh, you know, Wentworth Lodge, for example. And you know what I, they told me? That they care so much about their residents because they said, we're with them all the time. We know them. We know their stories. They said, we're likely to spend the last minutes of their life with them. So we care about our residents. They have to start getting residents up in the morning at 4.30 in the morning. They have to start waking them up and getting them dressed in order to get them all down to breakfast by 7.30 in time for them to have breakfast. And these are the very same workers that this bill is saying that you don't deserve more than a 1% increase. Yeah, and, and, and here's the thing. I don't think most people, when they hear that, I don't think most people are saying, you know what, that's the ideal people we should be going exactly. after. But... The challenge is, and and I think what people have seen in this, and not just from the NDP, but from the NDP at times and from the Liberals at times, is anything 
any cuts that are made is fought. And so the question becomes, well, where can you make cuts to try and bring the finances of the government back into order. You can't do it with the teachers, apparently, because the unions are so strong that they... Well, they're doing it. with This This bill impacts the teachers. Well, and they're so trying. You know. They're trying. But the teachers now, the elementary teachers, have a strike possible date right. of like, November 25th, I think, something like that. So it becomes this huge challenge of, like, where can you cut if everything is offensive to cut something. So I think the premise that all we need to do is cut is something we need to challenge. So another thing, two things about the the fiscal reality is the, the, is the president of the Treasury Board. I actually have to deal with the president of the Treasury Board, which makes me laugh. You know, what is the deficit of the province of Ontario? You know, they made a big stink that it was $15 billion, and now it's maybe $9 million. Just yesterday, we had the Auditor General weigh in and said that the deficit in the province of Ontario was never $15 billion. You had to chide the Premier to say, stop saying that it's $15 billion. Stop using it as a PR tool or an excuse to cut the wages and the benefits of the most vulnerable workers in the province of Ontario. So let's say it was $10 billion. So, but the point is... um, it also needs to be known quite clearly that the province of Ontario spends less per capita than any province in in Canada on health care, on education, on any social services. We are bottom, bottom of the pack when it comes to spending on all of those services. We're also, and this is important to know, bottom of the pack in terms of the revenue that the province takes in. So why is that? Why are we at the bottom of the pack in money? So if you're trying to balance, there's, you know, there's what you spend and then there's what you take in. The government likes to say, oh, you know, it's the same as your household budget. You know, if you, if you, uh, you know, had a debt like this, you wouldn't keep borrowing. But if you had a debt like this, you wouldn't basically quit a part-time job, which is what the government is essentially doing when they forego uh, revenue. And so they cut the cap and trade, which was cost, which is about two point, almost three billion dollars a year in revenue from the cap and trade. You know, whether you like it or not, the cap and trade—that's three billion dollars that they've just foregone and foregone in revenue, and they had no plans to replace that. So instead of trying to come up with ways to increase the revenue, instead they look around and go, "Hey, how can we save some money? Well, let's do it on the backs of the workers of the province of Ontario." Okay, so let's say that it's. Um We've lost some revenues, but let's say that instead of $15 billion, the real deficit is $10 billion. Uh, even if we increase, if we increase taxes by $10 billion, that's going to be troubling for keeping employment in this province. We're, yeah. we're going we're to lose. I mean, that's not really how it works. Like, I mean, really, if you didn't want, if you want to not spend any money in the province of Ontario, we wouldn't build hospitals. We wouldn't build roads. I mean, it, the, the, the analogy that, uh, that a, the government of, of any government is exactly the same as your household budget is is not exactly But we can't correct. spend forever with no with no balance, can we? Well, you know, I mean, I think what we need to make sure to look at it is exactly what you said, it's balance. And so do we really need to uh, find savings on the backs of workers? So now we have workers that have less take on take home pay. They're earning less than the rate of inflation. You know, our hydro bills, I mean, despite Doug Ford's promise to reduce hydro bills by 12%, our hydro bills are going up. Uh, All of these costs are skyrocketing. So really, 
if you had a, a, another approach at the look at the way the economy works, taking money away from people, taking money out of the pockets of people when they have less money to spend, less money to put in the economy, and ensuring instead that all the money accrues to the wealthiest, uh, the profitable corporations and the wealthiest in Canada, that's not a sustainable or balanced way to run an economy either. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here's the one other thing I want to ask about this, because it is a it is a money situation. In Ontario, in Canada, we just came through the federal election. We have this massive debt. And it was pointed out that in Ontario, we're paying a billion dollars a month just to service our debt in this province. And, and I looked it up, saw this, this thing online that explained what a billion dollars is. And I... It put it in great context that if I stood on a street corner and handed out dollar bills, one dollar bill every second, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it would take me 31 years to hand out a billion dollars. And it, I mean, it puts it in some sort of context of how much money we are, I, I'll use the word wasting by just paying it into this interest. And I, I don't know how we whittle away that debt so that we're not doing this anymore. So, I, but yeah. I don't, but I don't know that it's. Uh, how do we wrap our head around the fact that we want to make that even bigger so more money is going to the bank instead of to services and infrastructure and other things? Well, we're not talking about making it bigger. We're talking about who we think should be penalized for this debt and the deficit. Like There is absolutely no doubt that after 15 years of liberals, we have, you know, we need to get our financial house in order. No, no doubt about it. Uh, but, but, what I believe and what all the new Democrats believe is that this is not the fault of workers in the province of Ontario. They, they shouldn't be the only ones that have to pay the price to reduce the, the debt and the deficit. You know, as I said before, this government is, don't, do not kid yourself. This government right now is spending big. They've actually, take it, it would only be a conservative government that could spend more than Kathleen Wynne and the, and the Liberals, but still be c- cutting services. How is that possible? Because they're spending lots of money, but they're not just spending it on the things that matter to average Ontarians. And it's absolutely the truth. You know, the government, I sat on this committee, it's called the, uh, they had a fancy name, the Select Committee on Financial Transparency. And that was like Doug Ford was going to get the, to the bottom of the spending of Kathleen Wynne. And the biggest thing that they dealt with, the, 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 that, the, that the Ford government wanted to talk about, was Kathleen Wynne's, you know, the Fair Hydro Plan, which the government of, you know, Doug Ford and his, his conservative MPPs like to, you know, call the unfair hydro plan. But guess what? Doug Ford is keeping that unfair hydro plan to the tune of $4.2 billion a year in the budget. So there's money that this government is spending, but they won't tell you that. They won't tell you that they're subsidizing electricity rates that go to, you know, that support more than individuals. They support corporations and the big users of hydro in the province of Ontario. And individual taxpayers are paying that freight. Never mind they're not necessarily huge numbers, but never mind the whole hypocrisy of, you know, Doug Ford's gravy train. I mean, we hear over and over again, and they're true. I'm not just making this up. But these huge appointments, you know, they, they give, you know, some friend of the government, of the premier's, uh, you know, chief of staff, who was, you know, was the, uh, was it racquetball? No, he was a... Can't he was a rugby player. That's okay. what it was. Not you know nothing against rugby players, but appointing people to these huge plum positions. There's a there's which a, is a political thing that has happened forever not, from every. You part. know what? Maybe, oh. but not to the extent that this government. It's been like a steady stream of you know. It has totally been the gravy train. I mean, it's the hypocrisy of it. Doug Ford, 
was talking about Kathleen Wynne's off-book expenditures, and he asked the OPP, the chief of the OPP, to keep off-book a purchase of a customized, we like to call it a pleasure wagon. So, okay. Like, so, you know what? The, so, people of Ontario, if if we were, if we could really have some confidence and trust the numbers from the government around the deficit, let's start with nobody trusts those numbers that you just railed off. The second part is, is it just working class people that have to pay the debt or is it fun times for Doug Ford and his friends? And well, let we me ask you about that because I, I think you've made a, a, a You're making a, me angry, no, Scott. No, I, I, well, <laughs> I think you made a compelling case for the people at the very low end of the public sector yes. who, okay. So, and, and so let's, let's, let's say for a second, okay, we agree then on that one, that the people who are making 28, 29,000 deserve more than a 1% for personal support workers. But then you see other people who are in public sector areas or unions who have been making, doing very, very well. And I'm not even talking about the bureaucrats. I'm talking about teachers. I'm talking about others who in over the last number of years, because of the strength of their unions, have seen big increases, whether it's in their pension or their benefits or their salary. Where would you be okay if we said to the teachers, you know what, this time around, we're, we want to give some more money to the other people. We just can't afford to pay any more into education, or teacher-wise, salary-wise. Would you be okay with uh, that? No, or because the thing that I'm mostly really okay with is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in the country. And so the, the, the right of people to have free and fair collective bargaining is something that's enshrined in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so... What happens at the bargaining table um, is something that is at, at up the bargaining table. It's not just about wages. I mean, teachers don't go to the bargaining table to say that we want increases. They want to. They care about the class sizes. They care about the conditions of schools. We have schools that are crumbling. We have schools in Hamilton where there's lead in the waters. Kids can't drink the the water. That's what teachers care about at the bargaining table. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Sandy Shaw, NDP MPP for Hamilton West, Ancaster, Dundas for HWAD. HWAD. We got to have a sound effect for HWAD, like the sound of spill. I know hitting it exactly. It's, it's you know it's a great area, but it's, it's a, a horrible name. It's a it is a great area. Can I just say Hamilton West? So it's Westdale, West Mountain. It's a beautiful area. All of Ancaster and all of Dundas. It's a beautiful area, each with a distinct community geographically. It's kind of represents all of the coolest, best parts of Hamilton. Except it's called H-Wad. Yeah. Which, so I, I hear you. We need something that comes with a French accent. h <laughs> Even then, it's it's tough. But uh, we'll get to back to Sandy. If you missed last hour, uh, it was it was great. Tune in. Go to uh, 900chml.com. Go to shows. Go to the Scott Radley Show in a bit. It'll be up, and you can catch the podcast there. Some really interesting stuff from Sandy, behind-the-scenes stuff from Queens Park and issues that are going on right now. Uh, let me give you your quiz question, then we're going to get back right into it with Sandy here. Um, you know, it's Friday. The weather's been turning. People are needing a lighter touch. So today's quiz question, completely silly, completely unimportant, <laughs> but everybody is going to at least be familiar, even if you don't know the answer. Here it is. Only two characters, only two cast members, but we're asking for their character names, not their cast member name. Only two cast members from Gilligan's Island are still alive. What two characters did they play? So what are the two characters from Gilligan's Island whose real people who played them are still alive? That's your question today. 905-645-3221 star 99 
2-0-0. If you think you can figure that one out. Two people who were on Gilligan's Island are still alive. I mean, if you want to give us their real name, the actor name, that's fine. But we're just looking for what two characters from Gilligan's Island remain alive in real life. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Those are the numbers to call. Ben is in tonight. Ben's pinch hitting on a Friday. Give Ben a call. Give him your name. Give him your guess. If you know what the answer to that one is. If the lines are busy, call back. If the lines are ringing, he will get to you as fast as he can. All right, Sandy. Let's um, let's start going through this list here. Huh. Uh, you know, and we're going to start in Queen's Park again, although this is... Uh, not really just a Queen's Park thing, but there has been a lot of talk in recent days about cell phones, mm-hmm. about whether cell phones should be allowed in classrooms, and now recently about whether cell phones should be allowed in Queen's Park to be used. I would argue that almost everywhere you go, unless it is essential to doing your job that moment, they shouldn't be there, which means no cell phones in classrooms. That's my opinion. Where, where, where are you on? Let's start with the classrooms. Where would you be with kids having their cell phone in class or not? Well, you know, if we're talking about high school, I think that, uh, you know, I think that having just an all-out ban, you know, is not really that practical. It puts teachers in a position of trying to enforce something that's difficult to enforce. I think there's going to be more exceptions to the rule than the rule. I think as everything that this uh, Ford government does, it's more was just all about bombast and f- symbolic and show, show. But, but the funniest part is that the biggest offender of using cell phones at Queen's Park, I would have to say, is the minister, Stephen Lecce. I see him on this phone all the time. But okay, so we'll, we'll get to the politics in a second. Okay. But, for, uh, but as for classrooms, if you had a ban, if you had a blanket ban across the country, let's say, so we'll leave Ford even out of this. If you had a blanket ban across the country that said, and I know that federal doesn't handle education, mm-hmm. but anyway. And said when students walk into their classrooms, they dump their cell phone into a bucket. And at the end of class, they can pick up their cell phone and they can take it back with them. I would be- I believe wholeheartedly that we would have a better chance of teachers being able to teach in that situation than kids being distracted by their phone or texting or looking something up. I, I just, I don't see the incredible educational value of a, I, I'm not against cell phones, but I don't see the educational value of phones in a classroom. Well, you know, it, maybe it's just not black and white. Maybe it's shades of gray. You know, there's students that uh, can manage their time on their cell phone. It, as you said, it gets used for educational purposes. Uh, teachers sometimes can manage it in classrooms. Other times they can't. I really do believe that this blanket ban um, is just too heavy a, heavy a hammer for something that I mean, I don't know if anybody really even asked for this ban on cell phone use. I hear what you're saying. I'm not going to be, you know, obtuse about it. Kids can get distracted. They can be using their cell phone to play games, uh, video games, which may or may not happen at Queen's Park. But, you know, really, is this the most important thing that we have to deal with in our classrooms? Well, maybe. Maybe. And I'll tell you why. I mean, lead in the water. Well, uh, okay, for sure that is. But, I mean, I was, uh, I don't mind admitting it, thankfully things have turned out reasonably okay for me, but I was an idiot student. I mean, I was distracted. I am I was, shocked to hear that. You're not shocked at all to hear that. <laughs> I was I was the most easily distracted person ever. And if I had been able to have my cell phone in my hand and they said, well, sure, use it to Google the War of 1812 or right. Hadrian's Wall, I, I wouldn't have been looking that up. I would have been looking up stuff on YouTube and texting with other people. Now, there are some... Probably like you probably were, who were very diligent and very studious and very disciplined. No, I'm saying (laughs) a a good student. (laughs) I, I, but I'm thinking 
those people, they probably don't need the phone anyway to do their work. Mm -hmm. And the ones who are going to be distracted, who are going to drag down the EQAO scores, who are going to make it difficult for the teachers because they're not listening, I just look at it and go... I see a place for phones, just not in the class. You can use it between classes. You can use it at home to look up your research. I really believe that for those people who are easily distracted, phones are about the worst possible thing to keep it in their hands. Yeah, I don't disagree with that for for young people and for adults alike. Agreed. Yeah, and but I do think that it's going to be a ban that's going to be difficult to enforce. So now we put this. So now teachers are yet again have another thing that they have to to address in the classroom. Maybe some teachers are you know are welcome this because maybe then they have the ability to do this. But you know what? Unless it's uh, simple. It's not simple. Um, no, but unless what, it's a simple blanket he, ban that it, says... And it's not that simple. There's exceptions and there's wiggle room. And really, if if this is the government that really wanted to understand the, imp- the, the impact of cell phones in the classroom, they would have taken the time to address it. This is a government that doesn't listen to anybody. They don't consult. My guess is I put good money, as my dad used to say, dollars to donuts on the very fact that this government didn't ask one single teacher or educator in the province of Ontario whether or not this was a good idea. But there are studies from around the world. I just read a piece this week from France where they did this a year ago. They started to do this. They put a ban, and they're seeing great results. And, and I'm, I'm just looking at it going, you know what, I would... And again, it's not even to me. It could be a, a countrywide thing. I would be fine with it being a did, thing that in did this. Did you con- read about that study on your cell phone? <laughs> no, no, actually, I didn't. I didn't. Although I could have. Yeah. But but here's the thing. I would argue that I would extend this, or I would be willing to. Now, schools are unique ecosystems, obviously. But there's a lot of jobs that I would be okay if this was extended to. It becomes more difficult because right. some jobs you're out of the office who can possibly track what you're doing or not. Um, But there are places where I would say I I would have no problem if this was said that you're not to use your cell phone except in the case of an emergency. And look, the one I've heard from schools is, well, what if I have to reach my child in class? Well, what happened when your mom or dad had to reach you in Mm -hmm. class at school? They called the school and they went "Mm," and they buzzed the class and the teacher said, please send Sandy to the principal's office and then not a big problem. Like no. it wasn't a mystery how we do this. But we are old, Scott, in case are, you didn't but know. But they still have communication systems Perhaps. in schools. But my guess is if you called your kid's high school right now to say, I need to get in touch with my son or daughter, the, the person answering the phone would say, why don't you just text them on their cell phone? Why are you calling us? Maybe, maybe. And I mean, I've, the other one I heard was someone say, well, you know, we need to be able to reach our kids in the event of like a school lockdown because of a shooting That's or something. Upsetting. That is, first of all, it's upsetting that that would be the default position mm-hmm. that we're assuming. But the second thing is, my suggestion for how you do this ban is you still have the phones in the classroom. They're just in a pail or in a box or something right. at the front. So if a shooter comes into the school, okay, everyone can grab their phone. It's not, we're not hiding them in the attic of the right. west wing of the school God. or something. Which again. I don't even, so I have had a long week at Queens Park and now I don't, I don't even want to address the idea of shooters in schools, well, but I guess we do need to do that. But, you know, I just think that. You're, what you're saying has merit. I, th- I think that there's probably, you know, a compromise somewhere that kids need to pay attention. Cell phones are new. It's new te- technology. It's new for everybody, like you talked about. In workplaces, it's new. Queen's Park is the workplace. It's new. I don't think that we really understand the impact of them, the benefits, and the, and the you know, the pluses and the minuses of using a cell phone. But I do uh, think that 
you know, I do think that um, as far as, you know, kids learning in school, there's other priorities that could be addressed. For example, class size, uh, heat in schools, no lead in the water. You know, those are some of the things that we should be tackling first before we concern ourselves with whether or not kids have cell phones. All of those things are important. I just look at the cell phone one and raise it because it could be done very easily. I mean, some of these other ones are going to be very complicated things to try and solve. If we have these, this report of the lead in the pipes. Yeah, it's terrible. It's, it, the question, I mean, my first question is, if that's entirely true, how many miles of piping has mm-hmm. to be changed in schools? Well, that's not something we can do overnight. No. Testing a ban on cell phones in class, on smartphones for a year to see if EQAO scores went up would not be that difficult. You could pass that one and it wouldn't cost anything. And, and again, it's it presumably, presumably. Now, everybody can always complicate things. We know that. We live, <laughs> yeah. in, a, we live in, a, in an era when everything can be made more complicated. Mm-hmm. But again, the idea that there's a box at the front of the classroom, you turn off your phone and you put it in there and it's picked up by you on the way out. I, 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 here's the thing. I bet you, if nothing else, I bet you there are some schools somewhere that would say, we'll volunteer to do that. Sure. Just, we need the government or the administration to give us the authority so we can tell the parents we're doing it, but we're happy to do this and to test out and to see if it affects our yes. scores somewhere. Sure. You know what? And that would be a better way of approaching it if the government really did understand the implications of the legislation they passed. But what did someone say? This is a government that, what is it? Uh, you know, they, instead of it's, instead of ready aim fire, it's fire ready aim. You know, they don't take the time to really uh, sort out what they're doing before they. Now I'm just looking on my phone, by the way, as we I speak, see that because I, I just got it an, is radio, and I do see you're on your phone. Well, because <laughs> I just got an email about this topic from someone who sent sure. it to my email. It's from a teacher who wrote, "In my class, all cell phones are turned in during lessons and placed in a box called the cell phone prison." That's funny. Well, you know what, and and um, so teachers can manage their own classrooms more or less without having to have the, the you know, the, like everything doesn't... I mean, this is a government that says they don't want big government, but here they are interfering in every little thing like this. And so give the teachers some credit that they're able... They know what's best for their students and yeah. they're able to manage this. I'd like you know? to know what would happen if a, teach, if a student said no. That's the only thing because I don't know if it's just a teacher who on his or her own has made this ruling. What would, what, what's going to happen if, te- if students say no now with the legislation in place? We're going to have the cell phone police come to classrooms? Well, no, but if you have the weight of the education system as opposed to an individual, individual teacher, which then Maybe. directs the administration, which directs principals, which Maybe. then directs teachers, you know, I, I, you have some weight behind it. I will it. give you that there are pluses and minuses, but I'm going to continually insist that this is not the thing that we should be spending our energy, our time, our resources focusing on. There's probably more critically important issues in classrooms that impact students' learning than this. You know what I would have been even better at? What is that? Had I had a smartphone during school, I would now be on even a higher level of Candy Crush. (laughs) There you go, see? (laughs) I could have been a Candy Crush pro. Forget radio and newspapers. I could have been a a Candy Crush professional. Touring the world. Touring the world, playing Candy Crush Mm -hmm. against other people. Well, you wouldn't have to tour the world. You can do it by your phone. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show, sort of working. I mean, it's kind of working what we're doing here. Uh, Let me give you your quiz question quickly again. This does not require work. This simply requires you probably to have a good guess and maybe to sing the theme song. 
And I mean, those are not two horrible things to do. Only two cast members, sadly, only two cast members from Gilligan's Island are still alive. We want you to, you to tell us which two, and we're accepting the character names as opposed to their real names. I couldn't even name all, I don't think. No. At, uh, Alan Hale Jr. was Skipper. Uh, Bob Denver, not oh, John Denver. Bob, Denver. Bob Denver was Gilligan. Miss- Russell, uh, Russell, something was the professor. Um, Look at you. I'm, and now I'm starting to, anyway. I'm just we, hoping the answer is lovey and Mr. Howell. We want to know which two members of the Gilligan's Island cast are still alive. And again, you can tell us their character names, which two. And I'll give you one little hint. They were kind of connected. 905-645-3221, star 9900. You must be talking about the Professor and Marianne then. I think they were kind of connected. Well, you know, there were always rumblings. In, <laughs> imagine if TMZ had been around when the folks were lost yeah, on Gilligan's right. Island. Um, okay. Th- this I saw this story, and I, I have no idea what to make of it. There is a theater in Victoria, British Columbia, the Victoria Theater, which is putting on a play that is based, loosely based around a historic historic drama. So it is supposed to be true to life. It's supposed to be very realistic. Obviously, the you know, because it's a historic play, we don't have exact quotes, but it's based on the history of that particular thing. And so the director of the play, I guess the casting director or director, told a... Uh, It's based, by the way, on old, old Quebec, back when pretty much everybody in Quebec was white, old stock Quebecers. And so the director said, you know, um, to a a black actress who was trying out this, we're basing this on historical truisms as best we know it. As a result, it, it doesn't really work for a black woman to be in this play, but I'd love to have you back for some other play sometime to try out again. She is now taking them to the Human Rights Tribunal saying, you can't do that. And my question is, if she was being turned down for a job as a waitress or as a doctor or as a whatever else, I would be all on her side, all in her corner saying, yeah, that's completely wrong to say because she's black, she can't have that job. But in the arts, in a play, when you're representing something that is historic or that is familiar, is it fair to say that if I was going to do To Kill a Mockingbird, that Tom Robinson must be a black man as opposed to an Asian woman, for example? Is it fair to choose who fits that, even if it means that certain people are excluded? And you think I know what to make of this? Is that well? This I don't. Is a, so this is what's mul- your initial? What's your initial? My inclination? initial inclination is that if this director was truly artistic and truly uh, was creative, that this would not be a problem. I mean, the whole idea that you know that you know, we that the the, the um, you know turning someone down for a part because of the color of their skin—it's just not something that we do in any in any as you said, in any field, in any sector. And really, the whole idea is that, you know, what is historically accurate? Accurate. I mean, talking about old Quebec, uh, you know, old people historically in Quebec that was indigenous people. You know, there weren't francophones or people from Europe at the time. So it's all just a matter of, you know, shifting interpretation of what is historically accurate. But why does this need to be a thing? Why couldn't this 
creative director in the arts of all sectors not embrace the idea that it adds uh, interest and intrigue uh, to a production if they did something like this, if they interpreted it in a, in a modern way, you know, I think that it's just not a necessary, um, it wasn't a necessary thing to do. It just lacked vision. Is there a line, though, where that would not be the case? If you were doing a play about the history of Motown music and you chose a bunch of white women and white guys to do the characters of Ray Charles and, who, you know, and, and, and whoever else, Stevie Wonder... Does it well, become like ludicrous? No, that, I mean that would. I don't know if it becomes ludicrous. It certainly, you know. I would mean, you, would you be right? Would you be within your rights to say no? We need a black actor well, for that role you or know, those roles. There's no really not. The, I, I would say that you know if you're con- going to contextualize it, and we have had up until the most recent modern history. I'm not even going to say since. I'm going to say since the '80s where we've even begin to, begun to make sure that there's representation of people, you know, racialized actors and people um, represented in their, in their act, in the roles that they historically uh, could, re- could portray, but also at all. I mean, the fact that we have really up until very recently didn't see anybody of color playing any roles. I mean, we had Asian people playing indigenous people be- previous to that because they wouldn't give, you know, in- indigenous people roles. So, I think that the idea that as we're starting to evolve, to be a little uh, a little more recognize that we've that, that so many people have been excluded from this field, and recognize the idea that you know we need to be a little bit flexible and creative a- around what we what we do because sometimes you end up with a better product. You know, what makes me think of. Do you remember the very first George magazine? It was a magazine that John Kennedy put out, okay. and oh, on the right. cover yes, of yes, that yes. was Cindy Crawford. Really, dressed as George, as George Washington. Washington. I do remember that. Well, that was pretty great, but she's a white woman, you know, not anything didn't really at all look like George Washington, and that's what art is, right? I would, uh, have, just listening to you, and you raise a great point, I, when I read this story, when I think about this story now, I, I would have no problem with a person who, even if there were no black people in Quebec at that time, to your point, if you are playing Citizen X, Mm-hmm. What difference does it make? I, I'm with you on that one. Now, if this was the Terry Fox story and you had a woman of some non-Caucasian background playing Terry Fox, it's ludicrous then. Like there there are there are characters where you would say, no, no, we do need someone who is of a certain background to play mm-hmm. this particular person if we're going to do this. But if you are just portraying an extra or a... You Not know, even a, an extra, but a a, a, a a person who represents something of mm-hmm. a part of a culture, then no, I I, I, I don't... You're right. I don't think that there's a, a big issue here. Uh, but, but again, I go back to my idea of Motown. I mean, it would be a ludicrous play if you were going to do the history of Motown and you were going to have non-African Americans as the characters portraying the Motown people. You just It just would. It would be ludicrous because you're... Those are specific people that are being portrayed, right? Perhaps, yeah. I mean, if you're... In perhaps, those ones. Yeah, in those Where it's ones, a specific yeah. character, That's a specific right. real right. person That's that right. you're doing. Yeah. This is an interesting one. She uh, she has uh, gone How's to... How's she doing with her... Well, it's in front of the BC Human Rights Tribunal, um, and I uh, don't know what the re- result of this one is going to be, but I... Um, but, you know, and these are complicated questions, and so, 
you know, hopefully uh, some of these challenges, these charter challenges, human rights challenges, they help us to understand. They help us to deepen our understanding, help us to correct maybe past wrongs. I mean, I think that this is, an, you know, we're evolving in our understanding and our ability to include all kinds of people in all kinds of areas. So, you know, it's unfortunate that this couldn't have been resolved you know, without having to, to have a court challenge. But, you know, it starts to build our understanding of what we can and can't do or what we should and shouldn't do. Well, right? And it's also an argument about art. Exactly. Because the director is going to say, my vision, if I was a painter, you're not going to tell me what color I have to paint the tree or the sky. So my vision here is this. And so, look, it's, it's incredibly complicated. It's very complicated. The difference here, as opposed to a painting or a sculpture, is that you have real people who are your clay that you're using. Yeah, that exactly. And you and there may be actors or but you're but you have to really these are people that have yeah, you know it's, they've it's complicated, right, yeah. but I it, it you know, I'll say this. I don't think anybody well maybe I'm wrong. but I, I don't think a hundred or two hundred years ago anybody would have seen art as one of the great complicated, divisive argumentative issues that we would Ooh, ever have. I don't know about that. I think art has always pushed the boundaries. I think so. Right? But I mean, I they know. say Mozart was the, was the first rock star. Being made Mozart's music, people just thought he was insane and his music was like nothing they'd heard before. So that was controversial. I mean, there's all kinds of stories where, you know, uh, you know, they've, they've you know, they've, the, the Academy Francaise people would come and there was nudes and they'd cover it up or they, I think there was, you know. That was we just that. saw something like that. I just saw that this week that there was someone who did some sculptures and uh, someone put a pair of underwear on it. And I- exactly. The sculptor lost exactly. his mind. <laughs> well, <laughs> even in Hamilton, look, we have the the monument to injured workers and ki- workers that are killed in the job in Hamilton. It's a beautiful monument at the corner of Main and Bay Street. And there was controversy because that statue doesn't, you know, have a head on it. And it represents the idea that workers get hurt on the job. And there was all kinds of controversy around that as well. See, I didn't know there was controversy. I'll just tell you, t- truthfully, the first time I ever saw it, I was new to the city, I guess. And I I didn't know what, what it the background was, yeah. and I thought somebody had knocked the person's head off, <laughs> the sculpture's head off. Yeah. So, yeah, once I found but now out, you know, you now I know. It's, it's like, very oh, powerful. Well, that make, uh, sure, that makes sense. That's but, right. You know, I don't think they want a big enough sign that you're going to see it while you drive along, but you do have to put a little work into it, which I guess is ultimately the point of art that is anyway. exactly the point. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Sandy Shaw in studio with me for a few more minutes this evening. Uh, okay, Sandy, this is, um, I said we were going to deal with some serious stuff, which we did, and now we're going to deal with the non-serious stuff. Okay. Although some people are taking this very oh seriously. There is a woman in New Hampshire whose son tragically suffered a heart attack in 2016 after he was in a rodeo. It's a very sad story. And he died. Fatal heart attack for this 18-year-old boy. He died. He is now buried. He's got a headstone, the whole deal. Like you, like typically would be the case. That's where the sad part of this ends. Mom says her son had a wonderful, goofy, ridiculous, mischievous sense of humor. So every year at Halloween, she goes to his grave and puts something there, usually a skull on the ground with two bony arms coming up through the the dirt just to, you know, just to make people walking by catch their eye and maybe have a chuckle or whatever else. Well, the people running the cemetery every year lose their mind <laughs> and mm-hmm. immediately take away this, <laughs> this display. 
Does it matter? Like, would you have a problem with this? If you were walking to visit one of your loved one's graves and you saw someone who had set one up so it looked like a skeleton was crawling out of the ground, would you have a problem? Well, I might if it was at night. I might, that might. uh, That's not a problem. That's a a, a scare. Exactly. Gee, that's a tough one. I I think it's hilarious. I think it's hilarious too. I do think it's, and also, you know, I think that it's the way that she, this mom, it's her son. It's, this is her son. Um, it's the way that she's choosing to honor him. It's her expression it's of him. It's her expression. My guess is it represents the kind of kid that he was. She wouldn't have done it if she didn't think that he would appreciate it. So, you know, I think that I think that people need to kind of understand that it's not always about them. It's about her and her wow. son. Wow, Sandy. I mean, <laughs> hitting all the right notes on that one. Yes, we, yeah. we live in a society where it's all about you, for sure. Right. But I mean, I don't see how this is different from taking a bottle of scotch and pouring it over someone's grave like some people have now done I have before. A problem with well, that. Yeah. you're just a wasted scotch. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but I mean pick pick whatever it is you want to do. Somebody may have a horrendous flower display they right. put together. It's ugly. And you, right. But no one would say, "Well, we're going to take that away e- because exactly. it's not it's fun." I don't I mean, we seem to have this big issue, and I understand why, with death that there can never be anything no. kind of Right fun about it. And death isn't fun. I'm not talking about that, but you know, you, how many times have you been to a funeral where it's fun? A few, maybe a couple times, but it's still off-putting at first it, when it someone is, cracks yeah. a joke at a sem- at a funeral. Well, that's right. Although I think everyone, you know, there's a time and place I would say for all that type of thing. I think the Irish have got it figured out by the way. Well, you better have the, 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 the deceased person had better have had the kind of personality that it would enjoy it or else it sounds ridiculous. Then it's disrespectful. But you know what? Again, it's evolving, right? I mean, it used to be that when we, we would have people uh, in Hamilton, not that long ago, our loved ones would be laid up in our living room and people would come visit us, their loved ones there and for days on end. And that right now seems like something that we look at it and go, that that doesn't seem right at all. But it's it's just quite recent that we have the whole idea of the, this antiseptic view of death, you know, f- through funeral homes. We never see our loved ones. We don't. Uh, and so our culture is changing around uh, around how we approach death and dying and, and respecting the, the people that have passed. But, you, you know, ever, you look around the world. Look at Mexico, Day of the Dead, right? If you ever want to see something that we're talking about here, kind of, uh, go on YouTube and look up John Cleese's eulogy for Graham Chapman, who was his partner in Monty Python. I would love to see that. My guess, it was a little irreverent. Uh, more than a little. Now, <laughs> there, there is a bad word or two in it. Right. Um, but it starts out sounding very serious, at which point then it turns completely Monty Python-esque. Right. And you're thinking, is that wrong? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's, no, it was, it was exactly in keeping with, the, with, him. with who he is. And so I'm looking at this mother who's doing this thing for her son that's entirely in keeping with him. And I'm like, come on, why does someone have a problem with that? Except for the fact that you might wet your pants if you walk exactly. by at night. And really, what did she say? She He passed in like 2016. It's only a few years ago. And like, give this mother the opportunity to grieve in the way that she wants to grieve or respect her son or, you know, celebrate her son or connect with her son uh, in the way that she wants to. It seems pretty harmless to me. Okay. So speaking of harmless, Uh let's switch switch tack here. Uh, There is a woman in Fort Myers, Florida, who is gone, who's filed a federal lawsuit. She claims to have, she says she has post-traumatic stress disorder. Not fun if she in fact does, but anyway, she's filed a federal lawsuit with her condo board 
um, in hopes that she can keep her, um, well, her four emotional support chickens. Chickens. Her four emotional support chickens. And I'm, I mean, I would think one, maybe. I don't know that you need to have four emotional support chickens. And I bring this up because we have talked on this show of people who have taken some of the strangest creatures onto airplanes mm-hmm. as your emotional you support. Mean, you don't mean people's partners. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, I, I mean, really, I guess ultimately that's what they are. <laughs> your partner is your emotional support animal. Uh, no, there have been ponies. That have been taken on a plane. On, on a plane. Little, the little tiny miniature oh, yes, horses. I understand that. Little ones, that makes sense. Even so, if you're the person in the next seat and you've now got a pony stuck in front of you halfway. I would like to be on a seat on a plane with a pony, wouldn't you? Come on, a pony. I'm trying to figure out where the, where the line is, though. I mean, could you have an emotional it, support python? Oh. Could you have an emotional support iguana? Ooh. I don't know. I, I, like, why not? I don't know. It is, certainly is a, is a wavy line, isn't it? I'm looking But think- I, I think maybe, you know, we at least, as you said, we just absolutely need to acknowledge that people that have suffered trauma, again, are trying to deal with it in whatever way they can. I don't get chickens. I don't see that they're very comforting, but I, maybe I don't know chickens. Maybe I've underestimated chickens. Um, but I think that, you know, I think we... Um, I mean, how much trouble could be could chickens be, and why why does it why do people have to make a big stink about it? Like, says, let the woman have her chickens. She says they give her the emotional support her medicine can't. So maybe they do, and so why do why do her neighbors now, care? I, I would agree with part of that. Yes. When I've had chicken noodle soup, it has given me help <laughs> that medicine can't. Yeah. I don't think that's quite what no, she has. No, probably not. She doesn't put them in a bowl and just have them, you know, like in a in a warm oh, bath with her too. Oh no, no. But I mean, are they causing a nuisance for people in? There are rules apparently against. And, and like four chickens in your house, chickens poop and they, they yeah. cluck and they probably wake people up in the condo. And I don't know if any of them are roosters. Well, I have a hard time with this one. I'm going to be honest. With the whole emotional support animal thing, I get the dog, maybe a cat. We talked about cats a while back. I get cats. I, I not a fan of the reptiles. The reptile, but somebody might say, "Oh, somebody I'm might be. really close to my doesn't work for crocodile." Me. Yeah, for at least I for a take, short while. <laughs> yeah, I want, I want my emotional support crocodile on the plane next to me. So, well, no, you can't. Okay, I'm going to sue you. You may think that I am on top of all these important issues, you know, but I'm, you know. Uh, you know, at Queen's Park, this hasn't quite come up, but I think it's something that we need to make sure that we if address. You were, if you went on a flight somewhere and the person next to you walked onto the plane carrying four chickens under her arms and said, these are my emotional support pets, would you look at her and say, oh, that's lovely. I hope they help. Or would you look at her and go, yeah, right. I would have lots of questions. <laughs> lots of questions. And wondering uh-huh. if the chicken's have little diapers. That would be the other thing I would be wondering about. Especially if they're going to be sitting on my lap (laughs) and jumping around. All right. Let me give you a quiz question. Last chance today. If you need to consult your emotional support chicken, cougar. Well, some people might like an emotional support cougar, but that's a whole different story. As we go to break, Sandy has to run. She has a dinner to get to. We, I do. We, thank you for coming in, though. Sam Lawrence dinner, celebrating a f- wonderful mayor. So difficult Hamilton. to get you to come because you're so busy, but I appreciate you coming in and doing this. Love I having you back. had a great back. time, as always. We will do this again. Thanks for coming in. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. 
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.